Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a special one. It's a conversation with former Senator Joe Lieberman. Rabbi Wilds is joined by his brother, Mayor Michael Wilds, as they interview the senator about what it was like being a Sabbath-observant politician and what his advice would be to guide us through our currently fractured political time. This recording was part of the annual Ruth B. Wilds Lecture Series hosted by the Manhattan Jewish Experience. Previous speakers in this series have included Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Norman Lamb, and other Jewish notables. Just a little note, there were some audio issues at one point in the episode, but they get resolved a few minutes later. And so, without any further ado, here's their conversation. It looks like we are live. Uh, thank you for those of you who have come on already. We're going to just wait a moment uh, for some others to join us for this very, very special occasion. I want to welcome you to our 25th annual memorial event, uh, the Ruth B. Wilds uh, Memorial Lecture, this time interview with Dr. Senator, with Senator uh, Joseph Lieberman. I do. I think you have an honorary doctorate already. Well, I'm a Juris doctor, so. Oh, there you go. Not a real doctor, but it's a doctor. <laughs> My son, the doctor. All right. So, um, just while some of our listeners come on, uh, I just really want to begin, uh, of course, by welcoming everyone, uh, welcoming the senator, welcoming my brother, uh, the honorable Mayor Michael Wilds. This year, uh, we're going to be tag teaming and asking some questions of the senator. This is a very, very special opportunity for us. And so on behalf of my father, uh, Mr. Leon Wilds, who is watching with us right now, I set the computer up myself. Uh, on behalf of my brother, Michael, my sister-in-law, Amy, uh, my wife, Jill, it is an honor to, to really welcome all of you to this important event, 25 years uh, since our mother's passing. Uh, we thank you all for tuning in and for participating. It's hard to believe it's 25 years. It's, of course, the first year that we've had to go virtual. Uh, this is one of the largest um, gatherings that MGE has each and every year. But we are very, very grateful that we can still join virtually and that we have such a prominent guest with us. Uh, we're privileged to hear from an awesome personality, someone that we, my brother and I, and our entire community considers a true role model. Senator Joseph Lieberman. But before I introduce the senator, I'd like to share a brief thought about our mother, Pesel Abigail Bat Menachem, Aleha Shalom, in whose memory this talk is given and whose honor MGE was founded 22 years ago. Uh, this week's Parsha, Parshat Vayishlach, features the very dramatic encounter between Yaakov, Jacob, and his brother Esau. And this is decades of Esau chasing after Jacob for having received the birthright blessings, and Esau finally catches up. And we see in this week's Torah reading the dramatic encounter between these two brothers. And the first thing that Esau sees is Yaakov's large family. And he turns to his brother and he says, Mi elalach, who are these people onto you? And Yaakov answers, that these are my children that God has blessed me with. And then something fascinating takes place. All of Jacob's children are standing with their respective mothers, and one by one they, they approach their uncle Esau. 
And the Torah tells us about that the handmaids Bilhah and Zilpah approach the Aldehen with their children, Vatishtachavena, and they bow before Asaph. And then the next Pasuk, the verse tells us, Vatigashkam Leah, then Leah comes Biladeha with her children, Vaishtachavu, and she bows. The Achar, and afterwards, Nigash Yosef, the Rachel. And afterwards, Joseph and his mother Rachel come forward. Each mother walks before her respective children, except for Rachel and Joseph. All the other kids, the mothers are first, the young children are shielded behind them. Except for Yosef, when it was his turn to meet Asab, he stands in front, which is, which is curious because he's the youngest. If anyone should have been cowarding behind his mother, it should have been Yosef. Why was he different? And there are many explanations to this, but one that I absolutely love that I think is so appropriate for our program tonight. And that is because Yosef was the answer to the age-old Yaakov, Esav dilemma. Yaakov is referred to by our Torah as an Ishtam, a simple person, Yosheva Halim, who, a dweller of tents. He sat and he learned, he was studious, he was spiritual, he was filled with Torah. But Yosheva Halim, he remained within the tent and perhaps lacking some of the worldliness that would be necessary to spread that Torah. In contrast to Esav, that the Torah refers to as an Ish Sadeh. Esav was a man of the field. He had that quality of worldliness, but not of the values of Torah. And this division between a Torah, spiritual personality on one hand, represented by Yaakov, and a worldly one, represented by Esav, remained intact until Yosef, until Joseph came on the scene. Because Yosef would later on, by his own life example, teach that one could raise themselves within the ranks of a totally secular, even idolatrous society and remain steadfast in one's commitment to Judaism. It was Yosef who constantly invoked God's name when he was in the presence of Pharaoh and throughout his political career in ancient Egypt. Biladai, he said famously to Pharaoh, it's not I. Elokim yanet shlom poro. It will be God. God interprets dreams. There was no other biblical personality who achieved such a high rank in a foreign government and still managed to remain dedicated to his Jewish traditions. Yosef was both the Ishtam, Yosheva Ohalim, and the Ishtadeh. He was the Torah Jew who could also play the field. And he rose to the heights of political leadership and he maintained a strong Jewish identity. And that's why he and only Yosef could stand in front of his mother and confront Esau because of the kind of Jew that he would one day become and model for each and every one of us. I share this idea not only because our guest this evening has been called a modern Joseph, but because that is also the way that our mother raised us. Together with our father, Ibadel Chayim, our mother, Ruth Wiles of blessed memory, taught my brother and I that you could be part and parcel of the country and society in which you live and remain committed to your Torah, to your Yiddishkeit, to mitzvot. Our parents sent us the Yeshiva University. We studied Torah and Talmud alongside science and literature, but it was mostly a lesson that we learned from her actions and from her attitude. She was exceedingly proud of our father's success in the law 
but even more so when she would hear him incorporate some principle of American jurisprudence into our, our Torah study. She always encouraged us to learn with each other. My dad would begin to nod off after lunch on Shabbos and she would nudge him, go learn with Mark, open up a Sefer with Michael. And our father always did because she had our greatest love and respect. And to this day, I'm blessed to continue to learn Torah with my father. And I have my mother to thank for that. She encouraged us to take our Judaism seriously, to be proud of our Jewish heritage when she would see me praying or learning, or she'd see Michael, my brother, running out on a Hatzalah call. She'd always say, if only your grandfather could see you now. She was talking about her father who escaped Nazi Germany and who lived his life as a very proud and committed Jew. But she cared deeply for the broader community. And she wanted us to make a difference, even beyond the Jewish community. I have to tell you this uh, story, and then we'll get to the senator, but I think you'll appreciate this. When we were younger, my brother and I had a couple of uh, um, encounters, experiences in uh, Queens where we grew up. Got mugged a few times, nothing too terrible, but instead of continuing to just complain about the problem, uh, my brother decided to join the auxiliary police force in Forest Hills, Queens, the 112th precinct. And he walked the beat about once or twice a week for close to 10 years. And I remember very distinctly my mother sitting up every Thursday night worrying and waiting up until he came home. And knowing in some way that ironically she had kind of modeled this kind of behavior. And anyway, she was once driving her car and she gets pulled over by a police officer for running a stop sign. And when the police officer, when she noticed that the lapel that he had the 112th precinct pin on his lapel, she very innocently said, maybe you know my son, Michael, Michael Wilds. You know, he volunteers at the 112th and the police officer stopped writing the ticket and he looked, he says, you know, Michael, he said, sure, he's my son. He says, your son is Michael Wilds. And she answered in the positive. And then the officer said, says, ma'am, can I please ask you to step outside the car? And my mother was taken a little aback, but policeman asked you to step out. She gets out and then she turns to her and says, ma'am, with your permission, I'd like to give a hug to the woman who brought such a fine young man into this world. Sure. And this large Latino police officer gave my mother this huge hug. He was six foot four. <laughs> yes. You could not have made her prouder. And by the way, she didn't get a ticket, <laughs> but she loved her Judaism and she loved all people. And she believed and she taught us to be integrated in the outside world and that being a committed observant Jew was not only compatible with a life in public service, but was necessary for our world today. And so when we began MGE, just a few years after she passed, it was clear that we would dedicate this organization and our outreach efforts to her memory, because our goal to this day is not simply to reconnect our less affiliated Jewish brothers and sisters with Jewish life, but it's to demonstrate that Torah is an extraordinary recipe to finding purpose and meaning in the secular world and making a difference 
for the world. And I know this is something that the senator feels very, very strongly about. And I'm proud to say that it's been working. Hundreds of our MJE alumni are now living proud and committed Jewish lives. And they're also con contributing to society at large. They, they work at some of the top law firms and hospitals and, and, and schools, but they do so now from a much more Jewishly educated and committed place. And every year, and even during this challenging year, thousands have been introduced to Jewish life through our basic Judaism classes, which we're still teaching online, in person. Our beginner's minion, you can join us this Shabbat in front of Amsterdam Burger on 93rd and Columbus, they're heaters. And they're learning, our participants and our students, all of us together, that you can stay in the world and be proudly Jewish at the same time. And that's why it is such an honor and so appropriate to have the senator with us this evening, because few people have attained that level of respect and accomplishment in their professional lives and in the very challenging world of American politics and still remained committed to their Jewish roots and to the Torah as our guest is tonight. Senator Joseph Lieberman, welcome. Uh, Senator uh, Lieberman was the Democratic vice presidential nominee back in 2000. He served 24 years in the United States Senate with distinction, retiring in January 2013 following the end of his fourth term. He helped shape legislation in virtually every area of public policy national homeland security, foreign policy, fiscal policy, environmental protection, human rights, healthcare, trade, and go on and on. He's the author of numerous books, including, and I highly recommend, The Gift of Rest, Rediscovering the Beauty of the Sabbath, about how ceasing from activity on Shabbat has had a profound and can have a profound benefit um, for all people, including, uh, of course, the Jewish people, but everyone. And it gives me a great, great honor to have you with us. Thank you for joining us, Senator. Uh, Rabbi, thank you. Thank you for your uh, kind words about me, but really thank you for your beautiful words about your mother. And uh, it says a lot of, about her that you and uh, Mayor Michael have, have such love for her. And really, uh, you live a life that shows good parenting. Both of you, you're both, uh, you talked about Jacob and Esau, one was a man of the tents, one of the fields. You're both men of honor, men of service, uh, men who take the ethics of Torah into the world. And uh, so you really, you're the ultimate act of tribute to your mother. I'm honored to be here tonight on this 25th anniversary, this Yurtzeit, uh, for her, to remember her. But really, you are... You are you're, the two of you, and all you do are what keep her alive. And I, I want to pay respect to your father, too, who's a wonderful man, really one of the giants of the New York bar, New York uh, um, fraternity, sorority of, of, of lawyers. And uh, uh, God bless him, he lived to be 120. He's getting closer. So uh, that was a great story about your mother and the police officer. I forgive me, I'm going to take a minute just to tell you. One, one night, my mother calls me. My father had passed away. She was living alone, and she said, "I had an unbelievable thing happen uh, last night. A bat came into the house. I got terrified. I didn't know what to do with it. I called up the fire department. I said, uh, you know, I'm an older woman. I live up on Strawberry Hill Court, and uh, could you send somebody over? I have a bat in the house to help me get it out.' Well, ma'am, we don't do that. That's 
you know, we're here to put out fires. So she calls up the police department, same story. And he, the police dispatcher says, ma'am, um, you know, we have robberies and, and uh, a lot of things that are worse than this to take care of. We can't do this. She hangs up the phone. She thinks for a moment. She calls up the police department and she says, I I'm the woman who just called you about the bat in the house. Yes, I remember. I'm very sorry I couldn't help you. I forgot to tell you something. My son is Senator Lieberman. Wait, right, right there. We'll send an officer over. <laughs> so, and he opened the window. The bat flew out. She told me, but uh, Joseph, she's one of the few people who still call me Joseph. Uh, I told him that if he brings his wife and daughter to Washington, you'll give them a tour of the Capitol. <laughs> so I said, of course, mom. And about two months later, he did. Anyway, these are the, uh, these are the joys and uh, the responsibilities are coming with having uh, Jewish mothers, proud Jewish mothers. So anyway, it's great to be with you. And uh, uh, thank you for all that you do, really. Uh, um, uh, Mike, Michael's public service is well known and I honor it. I, I just thank you, Rabbi, for uh, the, the extraordinary way in which you have touched people. And you know, the book that I wrote about Shabbat, I call as you said, the gift of rest. And um, when I was a, a child growing up, to me, at different times, particularly when I got into high school, and I went to a public high school, not a yeshiva, uh, not being able to do certain things on Shabbat was, didn't seem like a gift to me. It seemed like a burden and a restriction. But as time went on, uh, I saw it as the gift it is. And I would say you're giving the, the gift, you have given the gift, of uh, Jewish values, Jewish tradition, Jewish spirituality, Jewish observance to countless people who would not have had it otherwise. And that's at the heart of continuing this remarkable uh, journey of millennia. So I honor you and thank you. And I thank all thank you for MJE. Thank you so much. Well, you, you, you started us off. Michael and I are going to ask you know, a little, uh, a couple of questions. And that was actually the first one because so many of us know how you're a proud Sabbath observant Jew in your adult life, but were you raised that way? Tell us a little about your Jewish upbringing. Yeah, so um, I was raised in Stanford, Connecticut. Our family was uh, Orthodox. I go like this because in those days, my family was probably one of the more Orthodox in Stanford. I think these days they might be considered one of the more left-wing Orthodox. Uh, my dad, just typical of that generation, had a liquor store uh, for a lot of years of my uh, upbringing. He went into the store on uh, on Shabbat. He, 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 he couldn't afford not to, at least he felt that way, and I respected that. He'd, come, he'd close the store and come home for Shabbat lunch and then go back. Later on, when he was doing better, he was able to uh, open it. But I did grow up, they, my family was quite insistent that my sisters and me observe Shabbat. So that was in us. I mean, I had all that there. Then I went to college and uh, almost in a way that I look back on now, it seems trite, like reflexive, almost too too simplistic. Uh, I, I, I left uh, Shabbat observance. Uh, I tried to continue to keep kashrut. There was a very small, I went to Yale, it was a small, really at that time, the kosher kitchen was like two miles out. So but they brought in frozen kosher meals. But I'll tell you something slightly mysterious and personal. Even while I was not observing Shabbat and uh, 
I, I was not eating non-kosher food, but, but it was hard to keep really fully kosher. Um, every morning I put on my tefillin. And I can't explain to you why, really, but it was like that connection that I had every day. It was, it was in me to start my day by thanking God and in some ways committing myself to, um, to trying to behave in a way that was consistent with the mitzvot. Sometimes, frankly, I would put on my tefillin, say the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein Hashem Achot, take off the tefillin. That was it. But that remained my connection. When I got out of law school, um, I got married, my wife was pregnant. But really, the other thing that happened that year was 1967. My grandmother, my mother's mother, who lived with us, we lived with her. <laughs> And we, when we were not ready to buy a home, and then when we bought a home, she came to us. She died. She was 86. She was a very important part of my upbringing. She was quite uh, from a wonderful woman, smart, funny, wise. Anyway, I was I I had this moment of truth, and again, it's not very profound, but I said to myself, my my grandmother, my Baba, has died, and uh, now I got a choice to make. You know, that link in the chain of Jewish history is out now. Uh, and I, am I going to fill it, or is it going to go on and pass the family by? And I started to go to the shul, the synagogue across the street from where I lived. It had been there for a year and a half. I lived in that apartment, but I'd never gone in. And then I, I never stopped. And little by little, I came back to full observance of Shabbat and the um, in the holidays, and uh, particularly Shabbat has really been the cornerstone of my life. That's wonderful, uh, Senator. And I would also like to thank you for uh, joining us uh, this evening. What a personal uh, treat uh, to know you all these uh, years and to look up to you, not just in the world of public service, but in the world of personal and ethical conduct uh, as well. Anecdotally, um, you mentioned uh, a family store. My father, he's watching this. I'm so honored that he's joining us again in honoring our late mother. Um, his father had a store, and it was my dear mother who one day went to my father and said, you know, maybe he should close the store because of the boys. We're raising them in a religious household. Right. And my dad went to my father, to his father, and um, my Zaidi, my grandfather, just closed the store just like that. And my father came back to us and then said, to us, you know, bless your mother for telling me to do this. But I want to let you know, Michael, years back, when I once came to the shul, um, my father asked me to speak and give a Dvar Torah about um, Shabbos. And I felt uncomfortable. Most of the people going to the shul were then going to open their stores. It was a small town, a coal mining town where if you didn't uh, keep it open, they will have finished their salary by the end of the weekend. And um, my Zaidi wanted my father, and this is again uh, in honor of our mother, to make sure that the community knew what they were doing was wrong, and they should know that even if they were doing it mechanically or for other reasons. But as far as we're concerned, and I can tell you from my own personal experience as a mayor, I know how difficult it is to keep Shabbos. How did you manage to be observant as a senator, if I may ask? Thanks, uh, thanks, Michael. So, um, I will tell you that that when I first uh, um, 
was elected to office way back as a state senator. The, the state senator hardly ever met on Friday night or Saturday, but there were political events, you know, testimonial dinners, uh, Democratic Party picnics or whatever on Friday night or Saturday. And when I first started to say I couldn't come, uh, people were puzzled, sometimes even angry. And when I told them it was a matter of my religious observance of the Sabbath, they kind of held back. But when they saw I did it um, consistently, they really became quite respectful. So it was really only when I got to the U.S. Senate that there was um, a, a, a regular, but not that often, conflict uh, between Shabbat observance and um, and the service in the Senate. In the 24 years I was in the Senate, I never really counted exactly, but I, I would guess about 50 times uh, the Senate um, met uh, on Friday night or Saturday. And um, I would, um, you know, if I knew it was meeting Friday night and Saturday, I'd stay down at the Capitol. I will tell you, or, or, or if I, it was just Friday night, it was ending after dark, I would uh, walk home. I lived about four and a half miles from this uh, capital, but my knees were really in good shape then. And uh, the Capitol Police insisted on walking with me because the head of the police said it wouldn't be good for his career if something happened to me walking home uh, from the Senate on a Friday night. So um, I, I would do that and it was, it, it was okay, really. Uh, I'll tell you one cute story. The very first uh, time that we met on a Friday night after I was elected to the Senate, uh, Senator Al Gore of Tennessee, who I had known a little bit before I came to the Senate based on trips he had taken to Connecticut, came over to me and said, uh, this is uh, Shabbos. He had been well-educated by the Jewish community of Tennessee. What are you going to do tonight? Because we were meeting Friday night and Saturday. I said, well, I've thought about it. I've arranged to sleep on one of the cots in the Senate uh, uh, gym. Oh, don't do that. He said, my parents have an apartment across the street. And um, uh, they're away. Stay there. I'll set it up for you. So I agreed. And he brought me over there. It was really quite something. He knew the whole deal. He said, now, which lights do you want me to leave on? And which lights do you want me to turn off? So I once said to I used to say to people that I didn't realize, particularly when I became vice president, that it's possible that I had the most prominent Shabbos Goy in Jerusalem. <laughs> so when it came to the food, you know, you could always get, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not making myself into a tzaddy. I would, um, I would eat vegetarian food <laughs> because it's pretty hard to get kosher food at the Capitol. But um, I, I, I was able, I thought, to live a, a pretty observant Jewish life and to be a senator. And I, I, maybe you want to get to this later, but I will tell you that I, I decided after years that, that what you would first think, which is that being observant, missed, not being able to be involved in politics, because I always said being in government, I have a responsibility that, I, 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 that my faith, my religion tells me I have to keep People are relying on me to vote. Their their safety, their well-being is on the line. But I'm, I'm so that's different of a government responsibility from being involved in politics. So I wouldn't, you know, go to any political events on Shabbat. And uh, over time, I actually felt it was not only not a, a limitation 
on my uh, political career in a mysterious and wonderful way was a benefit because people respected that there was something that mattered to me more than politics, which is the way they they would uh, say that. All right, I'm going to just tell one one more of my favorite stories quickly. Uh, you, you guys have got me going now. Please, please. Yeah. That's, that's, that's okay. what this is for. So people always remember stories. So it's 1988. I'm running for the Senate. I'm running against the incumbent Republican. I'm a real underdog. It looks like it's getting a little closer at the end, uh, but I'm still behind. And uh, I get a call probably about a week before the election from a, a state senator, Democrat, who was a friend of mine named Cornelius uh, O'Leary. When I tell the story in my groups, I always say, Cornelius O'Leary, he was neither Ashkenazic nor Sephardic. <laughs> a good Irish Catholic that guy, a wonderful guy. He says, you know, I called you because I've, I've concluded you're gonna get elected next week. So I said, gee, Connie, that's, uh, that's wonderful to hear. Why do you think so? So he said, I went to my mother's house yesterday afternoon. She's there with, he said, you know my mom, she's in her mid-70s. She's there with three other Roman Catholic ladies. They're having tea. So I asked him, in the presidential election coming up that year, are they going to vote for George Bush or Michael Dukakis? They're all voting for Bush, and I can't talk them out of it. So then I said, well, what about uh, Joe Lieberman against Lowell Weicker? And my mother says, Oh, that's easy. We're voting for Lieberman. So, and all the other ladies, he said, yes, I agree, we're voting. So he said, why is that so easy? Well, we like the fact that uh, he's a religious person and that he observes the Sabbath. His own say doesn't get involved in politics on his Sabbath. That's a great thing. So, you know, I only won that election by uh, less than 1% of the vote. Wow. And uh, who's to say whether it wasn't Mrs. O'Leary and uh, about uh, 12,000 other of her friends who made the margin of victory. And there is a larger lesson there, which wasn't always the case, but it was certainly as I was coming along, and I think still is, that uh, this is a very religiously tolerant country, and it's a very religious country, and people who are religious respect other people who are religious. Regardless of politics or whatever you're in, business, law, um, medicine, whatever. Mark, there's a typing sound that can be heard. Um, I don't yeah, know I don't know if I don't know if uh, I, I'm hearing it a lot as well. I don't just I don't I think it might just be within our the three of us. I'm yeah, not I'm not sure. typing. I'm not typing. I'm not typing. Yeah, I know. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's out there in radio and television. Uh, Binyamin, um, if you're listening to this, Binyamin, if there's anything you can do about this weird typing sound not produced by actual typing. I got about 16 text messages and somebody's typing cut it out. Oh. <laughs> um, you don't think right. that uh, yeah, Hashem is trying to send us a message, do you? Don't type on shots. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I was gonna, just to continue, I mean, your, how did your Jewish values uh, affect the way you made decisions as a senator? Um, did they guide you? Did they? Did you feel sometimes they were difficult? You know, we have this separation of church and state on one hand. Right. On the other hand, everybody comes in with their own set of values. So how did you negotiate that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I thought about it over time, uh, particularly looking back. Uh, and and uh, I, I will say 
that, uh, look, when it came time to cast a vote, I didn't call my rabbi and ask him how I should vote. But there is no question that when, a, when a, an elected official decides uh, what he or she wants to do, vote, act, uh, it, it is the result of a lot of parts of their own lives, their personal experiences, their education, their sense of history, and in my case, the values that I learned in, um, in my religion. I mean, the, uh, I could give a sermon on this, so I won't, but I'll just say it briefly and in the presence of Michael and, and, and uh, knowing that your father, Elian, is watching. It's not an accident that a lot of Jewish people have been lawyers over the years because we're a law-centered people. I mean, the, 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 the pivotal moment in Jewish history, I think, is on uh, Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses and children of Israel and the world. And, uh, you know, we believe that uh, laws are necessary to build societies that are just and moral, et cetera, et cetera. So the first part is that it definitely brought me into the law, but there are other ways in which, as I thought about it, I have to really, had to say that, for instance, I was very active in environmental protection in my state Senate Attorney General and US Senate days. And I know that part of that was obviously because the environmental protection movement came into being and, and flourishing during the years when I was uh, privileged to have those offices. But part of it was the lessons that I learned uh, uh, studying the Torah. I mean, right in, in Breshit in Genesis, where Hashem says to uh, uh, Adam that uh, he should, depending on how you translate it, he should uh, both enjoy and protect or guard the Garden of Eden. Um, in other words, you have a, a responsibility to enjoy the world that God's given us, but really to protect it because we have to be stewards of the natural environment. And I, I know that was inside me as I got active in all this. So, um, right, there's a separation of church and state, and there ought to be. And that's part of what makes this such a, a wonderful country for Jews who are, after all, a minority uh, religion here. But that doesn't mean that people... Um, can't be influenced for the better by their religion. President Washington, uh, I'm, I'm aging, but I wasn't here to hear his farewell address, but I, I have read it many times. And he said, uh, he warned um, his generation and future generations of Americans not to assume that America could be a just and moral society without the influence of religion. And I, I think what he meant there was that they were building a, a society of, of limited government uh, um, without laws to tell everybody what to do at every moment of their lives. So there had to be other sources of uh, good behavior. And Washington was saying one of the best is religion. And uh, in a way, I'd say that's, that's still the case. So I don't, I'm not embarrassed to say that my, the, the values that I learned in my religious education uh, were part of the decisions that I made as, a, uh, as an elected official. Senator, uh, what was going through your mind when Al Gore uh, chose you to be his running mate? Perhaps the most um, important station that a Jew uh, achieved, other than being a United States Senator with such distinction. Tell us what went through your mind 
And that state of mind, as far as um, those listening to you now, with this in our rearview mirror, as far as the, the majesty of public service. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, it, it was an extraordinary experience, which was in some ways surreal, although you go through it and you do your best. But uh, I must say that at a point earlier in my career, if somebody had asked me what was my goal in life, I wouldn't have told them because it was too presumptuous. But I really dreamed of being a U.S. senator. That was probably because of my, my own senator, Abe Rubikoff, who was Jewish and uh, who I'd worked for a couple of summers. Uh, so I got to live that dream. I never thought being on a national ticket was possible. And when they uh, called and told me that Al Gore wanted to vet me, so to speak, um, on the so-called short list, um, I, um, I was really startled. But, um, you know, and I talked to Hadassah and we agreed that it was unlikely to happen, but that uh, if that's what the Vice President Gore wanted to do, then we had a responsibility to cooperate with it and that I was honored just to be asked. But as it went on and it was clear, uh, and the last week, the first weekend in August, uh, we were told by the Gore campaign that he was going to decide sometime that weekend and that it was down to, this is really looking back kind of interesting, Senator John Kerry, Senator John Edwards, Probably some young people don't remember John Edwards, but he was a prominent senator from North Carolina who actually was chosen by John Kerry four years later to run for vice president with Kerry and myself. And um, um, Sunday night, uh, uh, it's a long story, but the Sunday night Al Gore decided um, to, that I was his choice. Quite really, and then I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, we, I woke up the next morning. We had heard the night before, Sunday night, from somebody, a so-called insider. You ready for this, Michael? From one of the networks called my press secretary to say, hated to be the one to, to uh, tell me, but um, they had heard from somebody inside the room with Vice President Gore in Nashville that he had chosen John Edwards. So my press secretary called me and I said, oh, well, listen, we were right there up until the end. I took out a bottle of kosher wine, of course. My mother was there. We had a toast to America, to Al Gore. Went to sleep. Get up the next morning, turn on the remote, and the uh, New Haven, Connecticut anchor is saying, now let me repeat that uh, very exciting news. Um, uh, the Associated Press is reporting that uh, Vice President Gore has chosen our own Senator Joe Lieberman to run with him for vice president. And I, I, even as I tell that story, I get <laughs> emotional. It was unbelievable. And uh, all hell broke loose around the house. So it was way beyond anything I, I dreamed of. And I was very grateful to Gore. I'll tell you one story which, which may be relevant to the Manhattan Jewish experience. Um, they flew us to Nashville that afternoon. We had a dinner, the, our family with the Gore family. And um, they were Al was going to announce the choice the next morning, but it had been leaked that day. Anyway, he said to me at the dinner that night that uh, he wanted me to know that he had decided about two and a half weeks before that I was his first choice. But he thought it was important that he bounce it off a few close friends in confidence. And um, he basically to see whether they thought America was ready for a Jewish person 
the so-called heartbeat away from the presidency. And he said that the, he said, I learned something, which is there is a difference between the fear of anti-Semitism and the reality of anti-Semitism. So I naturally said, how do you mean? He said, well, I spoke to some Jewish friends and some Christian friends. And among the Jewish friends that I spoke to in confidence, they were, they were anxious that I might choose you. And some of them pleaded with me not to. They feared the reaction. He said, among the Christians that I talked to, every one of them said it would not be a problem. So he said that was the difference between the fear of anti-Semitism among Jews and the reality, which was um, not that there was no anti-Semitism, but it wouldn't be ultimately a problem uh, in terms of getting elected. And um, that was quite remarkable. I hope and pray that that is still the case. There have been uh, outbreaks of anti-Semitism, obviously, in our time, which are which weren't existing then. I, I always say to people, don't get me wrong, there were anti-Semites in America in 2000, but uh, they, 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 they laid low, they hid under the rocks, whatever, because it wasn't acceptable uh, to be anti-Semitic. Um, and uh, that's the fear that I have most exemplified well, by the two, the murders in uh, Pittsburgh and in Poway, California, but also by, by that dreadful rally in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. So let's hope and pray. I, I still think that the, the number of people who are anti-Semitic is a small minority in America and that the uh, majority would rebuff them if uh, they began to really act out. But anyway, it was an extraordinary, it was surreal. And I worked uh, e extremely hard, never worked as hard uh, for the following August, September, October, and uh, then we had the bonus of waiting uh, through the month of November into December for the recount, which was a, 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 a awful period. And then, uh, of course, though we got more votes, we, we didn't win the Electoral College. But look, I always look back at it with a real sense of gratitude to Al Gore for, for asking me to do that, and then for the American people to uh, for giving us uh, 544,000 more votes than the other ticket, uh, even if we didn't get the number of uh, votes we needed in the Electoral College. Wow, well, thank you. Um, thank you for uh, for sharing that. Um, just moving uh, the conversation, if you if, if it's okay, to the more of the current era. Tell us a little, you know, you would think a global pandemic that we're still trying to get through here uh, wouldn't discern between red or blue. Um, and there would be a, a moment perhaps of uh, collective unity, but unfortunately our country is more divided than ever. Tell us a little what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and if, you know, do you have hope? And uh, I know you're an optimist, but if, you know, what would you recommend or how would you recommend this, the healing process um, to even begin? Yeah, well, that's a really uh, important question. Uh, it's probably the biggest challenge. I mean, the U.S. has big challenges like the COVID-19 or like the economic problems and all, all the others. But this is the sort of overlaying challenge to um, our government and, and I think has helped to divide our people. Uh, it didn't start under President Trump, though he, I'm afraid he made it worse, in my opinion, by his behavior. Um, in some ways, the last president that wasn't really 
hated by a lot of people was President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, but there were people who loved and hated Bill Clinton, loved and hated George Bush, loved and hated Barack Obama, and of course the same for Donald Trump. And there are a lot of reasons why it's happened, gerrymandering of districts, too much money in politics, uh, the way in which the media have become partisan, uh, the influence of, um, of uh, interest groups. Uh, and uh, it's all led to a, a situation in which um, a lot of members of Congress particularly are nervous about, uh, they don't want to take the risk of uh, working with people in the other party to get something done because they fear if they do, they will be primaried in the next election. Democrats by people to their left, generally Republicans fearful of people to their right. And uh, the result is that um, most of the people in this country are fed up with their government. I mean, Congress comes in with such low numbers of approval. My dear friend John McCain has now gone, uh, of course, uh, used to say that when your popularity is as low as Congress's is, you're down to uh, paid staff and close relatives. And uh, he wasn't so sure about all his paid staff. Anyway, uh, so this is a real problem. So how do you, how do you stop it? Uh, I have spent a lot of time since I left the Senate on an organization called No Labels. And it was started uh, while I was still in the Senate and No, no Labels is the idea, you're not a Democrat really, you're not a Republican mostly, or an independent, you're an American, and we've we got to work together. And how has that happened in America? People from the left and right, uh, not the far left and far right, because they don't want to come to the center. They left and right come to the center, they negotiate, they compromise, and they solve problems for the country. And um, No Labels, make a long story short, provides policy proposals for doing that, and then goes out and raises money for uh, Democrats and Republicans who uh, are what we call problem solvers. We've got uh, 50 members of a House Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, just a slight biblical reference, we call it the Noah's Ark. Or before you, Rabbi Wells, I'll say the Ark of Noah, uh, that we only let them join two at a time, one Democrat, one Republican, otherwise you can't come in. And uh, that's 50, and now we've moved into the Senate. We've got eight there, four of each party. Incidentally, they're the ones who in the last two days have announced this bipartisan COVID relief plan of about 900 billion, which is such a humane and important idea. And uh, lo and behold, today, although they had been reluctant, both Democratic leaders, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, supported that plan. So basically, when I, the power is with the people and the voters who, uh, you know, here's, uh, I just finished this way. Uh, it, it, in some senses, the public is divided uh, into parties that are now like tribes that are at war. But, you know, there's a fascinating question I've watched people uh, answer on polls, which is, do you want your elected representative in Washington to do exactly what he or she promised they would do when they ran? Or do you want them to compromise with the other party to get something done? And every time it's two thirds, sometimes over 70% say 
compromise to get something done. Uh, so uh, that's what I think voters have to vote for people like that. In incidentally, uh, and forgive me, but just the, uh, I saw a fascinating analysis of the presidential election this year by Mark Penn, uh, who, who runs the Harris Poll now. And um, here's the number quickly. In uh, 2016, um, interestingly, Donald Trump uh, defeated uh, Hillary Clinton by um, something like four or five points among um, self-described moderates in America. This time, Biden uh, beat um, Trump by, I forgot the number, but it's in the teens. It was 14, 15, 18. So it was a total flip around. And you could argue that that was, and those are people who are not party extremists. They, they're moderates. They want people to talk to each other, respect each other, and get something done. If I can put in a word for, the, for Jewish experience, Manhattan or otherwise, this is what the, the Talmud teaches us. You can have disagreements. It's not so bad to have a disagreement, but you don't hate the other person. You, the whole idea, and this is the idea of the law, as Michael knows well. Uh, you make your case, the other side makes its case, and the result is uh, um, closer to the truth, or in law, closer to real justice. So that's what we have to get back to, and I think little by little, uh, we are getting back to it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. If you had to make your case to the current members of Congress, what advice would you impart to them? Well, the first thing I would say is sort of a, a, a life perspective. And I, I understand how the pressures can be from your political party or interest groups or, you know, fear of a primary in the next election. But you have to say to yourself, I think, uh, and a lot of members do, um, Wow, I, got, I ended up being a member of the U.S. Congress. Imagine that. So what am I going to do with this moment of great privilege and opportunity and honor? Am I going to just play it safe so I can make sure I get reelected? Is that what it's about? Or, or am I going to try to work with people, and that usually means people in your own party and people in the other party, to get something done? Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say Generally speaking, and then I know you can invite a primary, and I had one myself uh, back uh, 15 years or so ago, uh, if you break from your party. But uh, really, the voters in the general elections, I think, reward candidates, incumbents, who, who work across party lines to get something done. Uh, so I, what I'm saying is to, to be bipartisan in my opinion, is not only uh, good for your soul and will allow you to look back and say, you know, this is what I actually got done when I was in Congress, but it's it's actually the, the, the best thing to do politically. Thank, thank you. And, and what, what are your feelings on, um, you worked with Joe Biden for decades in the Senate. Uh, tell us your thoughts on the president-elect, specifically if we could ask you, um, when it comes to Israel. There are some in the Jewish community um, concerned that the uh, president-elect will give Israel a hard time, um, revisit the whole Israel-Palestinian issue in such a way as to, again, try to squeeze Israel to make 
more territorial concessions and the New Deal and try to uh, resurrect the, the deal with Iran. Um, do, you, do you have these fears? Do you feel that Biden will be uh, less supportive than Trump was for Israel? Yeah, so, so uh, I'll say this. Uh, I do know Joe Biden and I know him pretty well. <clears throat> for a long time, because we had a mutual friend, oddly enough, I, I met him way back in the uh, 1970s, but really I got to know him when I served with him in the Senate for 24 years. He's a very honorable person. He, he does work across party lines. He has an instinct to be a unifier and, and wants to get things done. And I can tell you that um, he, he was always very pro-Israel and um, very close to the Jewish community, not just in Delaware, but in Pennsylvania next door and uh, really throughout the country. So he had a wonderful pro-Israel voting record. So why are people concerned about him now? And I have some concerns really more about his administration, but not in the long run. They're concerned because um, there, there were moments in the Obama administration in which he was obviously vice president, Biden was, in which, um, there was more pressure put on Israel than a lot of people who are pro-Israel, Jewish and not Jewish, felt was right, including me. Uh, and I thought, uh, notwithstanding that, if, if Obama was here and Biden was here, they'd probably say, yeah, but we, our administration probably did more militarily and shared more intelligence with the Israelis and other preceding administrations. And you know what? They might have been right. But they probably were right. But uh, the, the part of it that really bothered me was the Iran nuclear agreement, because uh, I just thought you couldn't trust Iran. And, and uh, we had worked across party lines for more than a decade to impose economic sanctions on Iran, uh, to pressure them economically to come to the negotiating table uh, to end their nuclear program and hopefully their support of terrorism. And I thought that um, the Obama administration and our allies in Europe and Russia and China uh, gave all that away in a bad deal that didn't really end the nuclear program, didn't end Iran's support of terrorism, didn't end their human rights uh, restrictions on their own people, didn't end their support of terrorist groups throughout the Middle East or their aggression. So uh, I, I worry about that. And look, uh, uh, President Trump, whatever one says about him or feels about him in other ways, uh, he's been, uh, uh, I don't know if any president has been as consistently pro-Israel as he has. So it's a tough act to follow in that sense. Um, but I, my real focus, and I'm, I'm chairman of a group called United Against Nuclear Iran, a, a bipartisan group, and we're trying to work with the new administration to basically convince them that um, 2021, when they come in to office, is a lot different than 2015, when uh, the Iran nuclear agreement was signed. And uh, uh, not only did Iran break that agreement consistently, but um, now we have this whole new configuration uh, in the Middle East, which is remarkable, in some ways miraculous, certainly constructive, which is Israel making peace with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan. And it looks like they are going to be really warm pieces. Uh, so uh, I hope that the Biden administration, and I have 
I'm hopeful, really, that looking at it, they won't be rigid, they won't be reflexive, they won't go back into the old agreement, and they'll understand, frankly, they have a lot more important things to do here at home to, to deal with COVID and the economy, other local and domestic problems like immigration reform, than to uh, create instability in the Middle East by rushing back into a bad agreement with Iran. I, I, in the end, I don't think they'll do it. Thank you, Senator. Um, you were a Democrat who supported a Republican uh, candidate for president, John McCain. And I know how close you were to the late senator and the extraordinary stories. I've heard them and I, you spoke so eloquently uh, at his funeral about your trip to Israel in the King David Hotel. Do you think that could happen nowadays in this extreme partisan environment? Please talk of that relationship and the substance of working across the aisle. Well, thanks. You know, but being a um, becoming a friend of John McGain's was really one of the great blessings of, of my life. And it just kind of happened. Maybe we, we both had a sort of maverick streak in us and we were both drawn together for that reason. But really, we found um, as we began to work together uh, uh, first on the Gulf War of 1990 and 91, and then on the war in Bosnia to stop the aggression and genocide there, that we had very similar uh, beliefs about national security and foreign policy, big emphasis on human rights and stopping the bad guys, as it were, uh, not to let them run loose. And uh, we became friends. And I'll tell you, one of the things, and so I'm going to tell you to answer your question, which is a good one, is still as possible. And here's what I think was a big reason why John and I became really good friends. Um, we began to travel together around the world. Every year in February, we went to a, a, a NATO uh, security conference in Munich, Germany. Um, and then we would visit uh, different uh, world powers together. Uh, when we got into wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we'd visit our troops there a lot. So uh, the relevance of this, this sounds way far away from the great debates and the headlines, but part of the problem in Washington today that allows such partisanship is that the members of Congress are constantly running and they're, when they have meetings, there's a Republican caucus and a Democratic caucus. And you don't get to really know your colleagues across party lines. But when you're on a plane, together, as I was with McCain, for hours and hours and hours, you talk, you laugh, you, you know, you read a book and you talk about what's in the book and you develop a friendship and trust. McCain and I disagreed on a lot of things, particularly on domestic policy, hardly ever on foreign and security policy. But, well, this is like the great debates in the Talmud, uh, but it never affected our friendship. You know, and, and sometimes we actually even changed the other's opinion, although uh, we were both pretty stubborn guys, you know. <laughs> so, thanks for that question. It's nice to visit his memory. He loved Israel. Oh, I tell you, we, um, we, 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 just, we uh, made a judgment. We used to fly on military aircraft. And then we decided, you know, this is costing the taxpayers a lot of money. And the planes are not that comfortable. So then we decided, let's fly El Al to Israel 
And then when we arrive there, we'll spend a couple of days and then we'll take a military aircraft, U.S. military, from there to Iraq or wherever else we were going. And uh, he loved Jerusalem. I mean, we would sit, we'd stand on the balcony and look out at the hotel, look out at the old city. He was a great student of history and he would just talk about all that he knew and I would try to share what I knew about the history of Jerusalem. He was a, a devoted uh, friend of Israel, really, in every way. It was in his, in his guts uh, and a dear friend of mine. I miss him. I miss him every day. Imagine you have a uh, crystal ball, uh, Senator. Um, you have a nation. You talk of uh, Senator McCain and your own service, two patriots. Um, one here with us now who can speak to a nation uh, that is divided and even the Jewish community that appears to be uh, divided. What message do you have for this fractured uh, experience that we have? Yeah, we're in a very terrible time in that way, and uh, you can you, you, we saw it again though. The the majority voters voted for Biden, and I think in a big measure um, because they wanted to to calm things down to try to unify the country. There were of course a lot of people who voted for him who were really disdainful of President Trump and vice versa. Uh, we've got to get back to. Um, to, to realizing we're one country and one people. And we really are. I mean, it's remarkable as you see the advance in so many ways in our society of uh, people who have been or are still in minority groups, whether African-American, Hispanic-American, South Asian-American, um, uh, and Asian-American. It's really quite remarkable. And uh, these are really good Americans. They love the country and they're loyal to it. And, and we, we, we we have to find ways, and it really has to begin at the top, where our leaders remind us constantly that we're one people and that we benefit uh, as we stay together. And yes, we have differences of opinion, but so what? We're, um, we're a remarkable country, still the, the land of greatest opportunity for uh, people in the world. Look at me, look at my, my wife. My wife is a child of survivors of the Holocaust. She was born in Prague, her family came here. And, you know, she went to college and graduate school and uh, just been a wonderful partner to me. And I, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, so there you go. And uh, I got the opportunity to be a senator and, uh, and even run for vice president way beyond my dreams. So what can you say but God bless America? I think the majority of the American people feel that. And I think that we, and so now the same has to, we have to work at that among Jews. We have to bring Jews back, as, as you do, Rabbi Mark, to an understanding uh, that we're all brothers and sisters. We, we, we have, may have differences. You know, you, I was thinking about uh, Yaakov and Esau. They had their disagreements, obviously, although there was a poignant way in which they met each other and they meet each other in this Parsha. And um, uh, also a poignant way, and this is mirrors the... the uh, paternity of Abraham, of Yitzhak and Ishmael, and um, um, Yitzhak of Yaakov and Esau, the father really loved both of them. And the brothers come together in both cases to bury the father. Remarkable. Uh, and so let's hope we can all figure out that we're brothers and sisters before we come to a, 
a sadness like that to remind us of our common heritage. Incidentally, and I know we got to go in a minute, I thought it was great, I don't know whose idea it was, that the recent uh, peace agreement between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain was not called a peace treaty <laughs> or the opening of diplomatic relations. It was called the Abraham Accords to remind everybody that America, a Christian nation, Israel, obviously Jewish, UAE, and Bahrain, Muslim, uh, we're all children of Abraham, and uh, and we ought to act that way. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. What a beautiful way uh, to kind of coin what we're here to honor, and that's uh, my brother, Rabbi Mark's extraordinary work. Um, you spoke of our patriarchs. Um, we're the children of Jacob, B'nai Yisrael, not Abraham or Isaac, because Jacob is the only one we see in the Torah that actually connected with his grandchildren. You don't see Abraham connecting with his grandchildren, um, Jacob and Esau, and you don't see Yitzchak with the 12 tribes, but you do see Jacob crossing his hands when he blesses his grandchildren. And we're going to be judged, I think, ultimately by what we do for the next generation, not even our own children. You coined it beautifully, and I think it's safe to say that we've always grown up comfortable with the middle. We're here to honor my mother. I'll never forget. She went to sleep every night listening to Johnny Carson. The rest of the nation went to sleep listening to either David Lemon, Johnny Carson from Nebraska, from Indiana, people that were literally raised in the middle and appealed to all the sides. So important that we understand and listen, and you don't have to agree with somebody to show some derech and respect. Our office has been working with Mrs. Trump and her beautiful parents on their immigration affairs. And I'm a very proud Democrat who takes great comfort in the middle of the road, despite the politics uh, that comes out of Washington and in the media. All I can say is you've now joined us in the ranks of some very important people, um, Senator Dr. Lamb, Rabbi Steinsholz, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, wasn't just a client of our office. These three gentlemen actually spoke uh, at an MJE forum honoring our great mother in many years in the past. My mother had this expanding Shabbos table and she placed in the chicken soup the very ingredients of love of Torah and trying to bring people together. And I wanna thank my brother who exclusively, despite a pandemic, has literally been working round the clock uh, to help thousands, not hundreds, but thousands at this time of New York City young Jews keeping connected. And we are still in this expansive virtual Shabbos table this evening, listening to a gentleman of the first order and envisioning a world where our mother's grace will continue. I'm proud to say for everybody listening uh, that my son and my daughter each have had children in the middle of the pandemic. My son chose to name uh, his daughter um, after our dear mother. So the conversation of our mother and our household continues to a new generation. And we hope and pray that your home and your um, beautiful expanding table and family will enjoy the same reverence and that we as a nation will grow together and we will support people like my brother so that we can get this beautiful experiment that we call America um, handed over to the third generation with the same reverence and respect that we received it from our parents. Thank you, Senator 
uh, for joining us. Thank you. May, may your mother's memory be a blessing and an inspiration for all of us, as it is obvious it has been uh, for the two of you uh, brothers. Uh, and one of the best things about you is your devotion to one another. It's really, it's a model for everybody else. So God bless you and may you go to at least 120. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.